Let's Cover That podcast is brought to you by CMNF Group, professional liability services for over 200 healthcare professions. Visit our website at cmfgroup.com slash podcast for more info. Hey, everyone. It's another episode of Let's Cover That, and I'm Will Sullivan. And I'm Antonina Agruza. And today we have with us Ned Palmer, co-founder and COO of Panacea Financial. Ned, it's great to have you on the podcast today. How's it going? Going well. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks, Antonina. I really appreciate being here. Super excited for this. Yeah, so are we. So Ned, tell us a little bit about your background in healthcare and kind of what led you to co-founding Panacea. Absolutely. Thank you. So I am a practicing physician still here in Boston. I'm an internist and a pediatrician, so I'm I'm dual boarded. So my training was about eight plus years. Then I went on to fellowship in in global health, uh, adding another couple of years, rounding it out to to, to a solid 10. Um, And the idea during that training uh, that I underwent an extended period of time of not making more than $50,000, what we really began to realize, my co founding partners and I, is that what is normal in medicine has really parted ways with an understanding of what should be normal or accepted within the traditional banking sector. Um, and, and that means that it's, you really end up with a lot of situations that are kind of square peg and around hole. Uh, and, and that's cliche, but what it leads to is massive amounts of financial stress, massive amounts of insecurity, delayed adulthood, delayed being able to like invest in things like buying your own home, investing in your own practice, being able to really live that like fully fledged adult life is delayed by virtue of the training pipeline and the pathways that you go through and it not being understood that that's what normal is. Normal, unfortunately, these days is $250,000 in debt before you ever see a paycheck, much less a, a, a fully baked either attending or in practice paycheck of any kind. Normal is in your early to mid 30s before you see any realistic income whatsoever. Uh, your FICO score naturally uh, to your, your credit score, excuse me, tends to take a hit with those kind of things. And so when you're trying to put somebody into a, a very rigid consumer bucket like that to understand their level of risk, it's often misattributed or mispriced. And that financial stress, financial harm that comes to people in our community, doctors, causes a lot of really negative downstream effects, burnout, loss of resiliency, um, and and just stress, unhappiness. And it's kind of the worst thing that you could have if you were to design a healthcare program and be like, you know who I want? I want my doctor thinking about where when his next paycheck's coming from. That's where I want their focus to be, you know? So it was it was a problem that we lived. And then as we started to understand it better, we realized that it wasn't unique to us and it really affected our entire community. And that's, that's the genesis of where Panacea came from. It's trying to solve this problem for our community. Yeah, that's a, that's amazing. So when, when you talk about it, Ned, so, so what is the average physicians walking out the door with a quarter million dollars of debt? Yeah. So the, the numbers for this year uh, is that if you graduate with an MD, you're going to, you're likely to graduate with $203,000. If you graduate with a DO, $259,000 the day that you graduate. Uh, a dental degree, $298,000 on the day that you graduate. And veterinary medicine is, is right in between there at around $260,000. And that's the day you graduate. So if you then go into further training where you're deferring that, 
that's adding interest. So I graduated, I was lucky. I didn't graduate with $200,000. I graduated with $301,000 in debt the day that I graduated. I added $97,000 of accrued interest during my six years of training program. That number doesn't freeze. This is before COVID admittedly, but uh, that, that number doesn't freeze. And so even that number at graduation really misrepresents the reality of the debt burden for a lot of these borrowers. So so when you're looking at the debt burden, especially, you know, like you said, Ned, like you're going through a 10-year process, you know, in your 20s into potentially even like your early mid-30s if, if you start quick enough after undergrad. Um, you know, what, what are the type of stories you've heard where like there's that gap of understanding where you're looking at the large financial institutions and you're trying to, you know, I'm just thinking about going to law school and I did four years and, you know, I definitely understand that level of debt that you have and trying to tackle that versus I think the average debt of a graduate from undergrad in the country is like 20, 30 grand. So, I mean, you're looking at like a massive swath of difference between all of you who are taking care of us and the rest of the population. But I mean, what are like practical issues of that? Like you're trying to get a loan for a car for this new residency that's on the other side of Boston that you can't get to on a commuter shuttle on, on a train or, you know, what does that look like practically speaking? Absolutely. The, so one of the most commonly used metrics and just to identify it is debt to income ratio. Mm-hmm. It is it is used all the time. You'll hear it. It's DTI, DTI this. In consumer underwriting, it is really central to a lot of how that works. Um, and what it looks at is all debt. Just debt is debt is debt. And that right there, that metric, I think, is one of the more harmful approaches to these high-level professional careers. Because, well, like yourself, when you're going to law school, $200,000 in debt to go to law school is not the same as $200,000 because of a very challenging weekend in Las Vegas. That is, those are wildly different debts, right? You took $200,000 and didn't blow it on the roulette table. I don't know what your game is, but uh, on the the roulette tables or blackjack (laughs) tables, but instead you invested $200,000 in yourself, in your future income, in your employability, in a high level professional doctorate level degree that is very different. And so, Debt is not debt is not debt, right? There are there are wildly different approaches to this, but when you start to take metrics like the debt to the income ratio, you massively misrepresent borrowers uh, and misunderstand what their what their risk is. You require things totally out of step. You're asking now people in their mid thirties with doctorate degrees to get cosigners because they've fallen outside of this magical box. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that debt as kind of the top line, you know, your, your debt to income ratio, when you leave with $250,000 of that before you've ever had anything, your debt to income ratio is upside down. It's, you know, five to one, right? I graduated, I started residency, I owed $250,000, I was making $50,000. I was so far upside down. It wasn't that I I, I was outside the box. It was like, I, these numbers don't even make like calculable sense in terms of how they're interpreted. Um, and so just that top line item, like traditional entities regarding debt as debt as debt is really one of the most challenging and I think harmful things to entire communities. And you miss that nuance of debt is a fantastic way to invest yourself, right? Even that $200,000 for school is different than $200,000 in debt that you took out to buy a house. And, and so there's just there's this lack of nuance and lack of understanding about what different debts can mean. Um, 
And when you lose that, you, you really lose the capacity to meet communities at what their needs are. And that's where it leads to a lot of stress and stress and harm and frustration. So Ned, that all sounds great. And I think, you know, what we would like to really understand is how does Panacea differentiate from other borrowers and lenders? And, you know, what kind of impact is that having on the people that, you know, come to you and use your platform? Panacea is, is hyper-focused on one group and it's a group that we understand. Um, and this is a group of, of physicians, dentists, veterinarians, and podiatrists in the United States, all in, you know, in a country of about 340, 350 million people, we're looking at one and a half million of them. That is both a large number and a small number, depending on kind of how you decide to slice it. By staying hyper-focused on this niche group, and a, and a group really that we understand critically because we've been through this pathway with them. We've, we've, we've been in the, same, in the same mud, so to speak, uh, going through this. We can design and build everything for this group. We don't have to try to include every single possible permutation or variation. We can say, this is a product for a physician in training. That's it. That's it. It's not for everybody in training. It's not for everybody who's ever been to school. We don't have to try to paint with these broad brushes. We can be so specific and targeted that our, our, our products are designed exactly for this community in, in the best possible way that we, with expert advice, was able to build these products. Um, our underwriting is in recognition of what it took to get to, to be there. It's in recognition of the, the maturity and the responsibility that comes with getting doctorate level healthcare education. Um, and then on the servicing side, we're able to service everything in recognition of what our customers need. And so before we even had any customers, we had a 24 seven call center based in Virginia because we know that healthcare runs around the clock. We know that being able to meet our customers who run around the clock, they operate 24 seven, 365. We need to be there for them whenever they, they are uh, asking for the help and for the accessibility. Um, and so we had that before we even had a customer, we had the call center um, because we knew it was central to what we're doing to, to be there to support our customers whenever they need it. It's not, healthcare is not Monday to Friday, nine to five at, by, by any stretch of the imagination. And we knew that meeting this level, uh, meeting this, this community of borrowers, we'd never be able to, to connect with them if we didn't recognize what their lived experience is. And their lived experience is this, it's working around the clock, it's being available on holidays, it's finding five minutes between patients and having some person that you can call that will actually take the next steps forward. It's really making use of all of that time protecting the doctor's time and then respecting them as borrowers um, and trying to build all of our products and services in this entire cycle that we have uh, around the doctor. And the, and the cycle of products that you guys have, Ned, is going from all the way from the student all the way up to, hey, I'm going to buy into this surgery center or this new physician practice, veterinarian practice, and get a loan from you all to kind of facilitate that. Whereas you know, you might be five years out, but still have a hundred, two hundred grand in debt if if you're like you and you did ten years of it all, and you know you you have that debt, you know, the income ratio. But now you're in an opportunity to buy. Most partners aren't going to sit there and say, "All right, we'll wait three more years or help you pay off your loans and things like that." You know, so you guys kind of deal with the whole life cycle from the student all the way into uh, becoming business partners, right? 
Yeah, we so we'll start in that last year of your healthcare training. And there's a couple of reasons for that. that. Really, the central reason is that last year is the most expensive and you're out of money or access to money. Your federal loans are capped. Every year they're capped at a certain amount and they don't give you more in that last year. It's the same amount you had in years prior. Um, and what you need to do in your fourth year in preparation for taking the next steps is apply, interview. If you're like me, you have to buy a new suit. Uh, I needed to travel around the country. I took 20 interviews all over the country. I then had to move. I had to pay for licensure. I had to start applying for board exams and more examinations. I spent an extra probably 15 to $18,000 in my last year of training. I had no access to that funding. It wasn't coming from the federal government. I had tapped out of my student loans. That was all already spoken for because I was living the same life I had the three years prior. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm talking about putting ten, fifteen thousand dollars on credit cards, and then now I'm paying those off when I'm a resident, a big time resident, making fifty thousand dollars, trying to pay off ten thousand dollars in credit card debt. So, so we start in that final year of, of healthcare training because we recognize that that is, again, normal to have to go through these expenses. You can't get a residency without applying, without interviewing, without flying around for it, without finding a new suit. Uh, these are things that are required of you, but there's no support for. And so we wanted to be there in recognition of, of what it takes to get to the next step, to help them invest in that next step, uh, getting to residency, getting through residency, and then getting out into practice where we absolutely, we are thrilled to continue to be with the life cycle of these borrowers and be their first choice when, they need to buy into a surgical center, open up their own practice, build it from the ground up. Really anything that they need to do when they when they transition from the doctor as person to the doctor as a business. Um, you know, that's a that's a really critical transition that that a lot of our borrowers go through. And we absolutely want to be there to support them then as well, because even our commercial products are designed and built with the doctor at the center, taking away a lot of this. You know what? In, in the same way that, you know, we'd say like careers outside of medicine aren't, you know, they're, you shouldn't be regarded. Debt is not debt is not debt. Uh, you know, a restaurant is not a, a dental practice. A, a, a dental practice is not the same as a hotel. And if you try to use these same broad brush metrics, you don't just miss out on opportunities. You really create a, a much worse experience for the person who's trying to go through it. And this person, again, is the doctor providing care for someone you might love and want to, to receive good care. So it's it's really trying to take those extra steps to get to a point where that doctor is focused on what they've done the 10 years of training on and not their next check, whether they're going to be able to make payroll this month. Do they have anybody helping and supporting them financially in recognition of what they've been through? Ned, one of the things I think is really crucial to understand, especially going through the pandemic and, you know, really you know, for over a decade now, it's like the mergers and acquisitions, just the gobbling up of physician practices that have gone on throughout the country. I think one of the things that's unique is that Panacea places itself in support of the doctor, whether employed or independent, startup, kind of perpetuating a business as a new partner. You know, a lot of people are talking about how many docs are actually going to stay independent and kind of be more entrepreneurial and you yourself being a doctor and being entrepreneurial kind of with your, your practice as well as business. How do you see yourselves as a business supporting in the future for doctors to kind of maintain autonomy or networks of practice rather than just being gobbled up by private equity or, or larger health systems? How do you see Panacea kind of playing in that gap there? 
Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great question. So I'll, I'll start with the macro, uh, you know, really what we've seen from the industry, capital T, capital H, the healthcare industry, you know, um, and it really does go back now 12 years ago, I guess, under the, the ACA, Obamacare did a lot right. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't, this, this is, they, there was a lot done in there. There was a lot of shoring up of the healthcare industry that badly needed to be done. It created incentives for this verticalization though. And so Private equity is a new change, but even starting 12 years ago, there were a lot of incentives for hospitals and healthcare systems to go out and buy up small shops, single provider, two and three small multi-practice providers, and start rolling them in, strengthening up these referral networks. It, mm -hmm. it, it makes good business sense. And the ACO, uh, as as then as they started to establish ACOs, uh, uh, accountable care organizations, um, accountable care organizations. And started to increase their actual incentives, their, their payouts and their bonuses um, from, from the insurance companies. And so that's kicked off about 10, 12 years ago. Now the last over the same time period is, Will, you mentioned, private equity has really been ramping up and following that same model. Networks, clusters, you know, centralizing back offices and letting doctors practice out individually. This has all been happening um, in some places with some success. I, I can't say it's all been uniquely bad, However, a lot of it has been bad. And what we've seen now, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm saying it because it's been on the cover of the New York Times because it's been bad. This isn't my own personal, I'm not, I'm not staking a claim in this, but private equity, especially in the, in the realms of emergency medicine, um, surgical center ownership, and some of these other arenas have not provided what we want at the end of the day, which is patient-centered care, with the doctor focused on being at bedside and 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 them receiving the highest quality of care possible, um, it's it's turned medicine into in, it's it's widgetized medicine, um, and that now these are these are units, these are pieces being sold and administered, uh, and and everything is metric driven in a way that metrics aren't humans and cells on a spreadsheet are never going to be the patient sitting in front of you, and and life is always more complicated than that, um, and so it's left a lot of kind of that even pre-pandemic was really happening. Now pandemic accelerating what we've heard out these these, wor these words that we're all now so familiar with this mass physician resignations, um, burnout, loss of resiliency. Uh, I, there was a study put forward by um, Jackson Physician Search that over 56% of physicians are looking at alternate employment after the pandemic. And, and that is not as, as nuanced as they're not leaving medicine, but they're unhappy. So every other physician is looking for a change. Um, and that was about eight months ago, 10 months ago, I think that, that that study was actually published, right? So so we're really seeing people, these doctors, starting to raise their hands and say, like, I am not happy with the status quo anymore. I probably wasn't before, but we're really approaching this kind of this, this idea of this like mass tipping point. Um, now, our goal is to keep physicians independent in as much as they can be. We want physicians, we want doctors, so physicians, uh, physicians, dentists, and veterinarians, we want them to be able to be small business owners, run their own shop. We want them to be profitable. We want to help them find ways in which the financial side of things isn't the burden that drags them down. There will always be policy changes that we're all going to be left scrabbling to kind of <laughs> to kind of back up and understand. But the financial side of it shouldn't be that. The financial side should be where it makes your life easier. Running your payroll should be easy. Processing your payments to make sure that when people are standing in front of you trying to pay you for the services that you're providing, you do that seamlessly and it's and it's never in the way. It's in addition to. 
Um, it's never a hurdle. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's an additive. And so we have tried to design our, our, our entire financial services package, right? Which is helps you run your business as a business, as well as financing it as you need it. Um, to remove those hurdles, to keep you independent for as long as possible. Um, we also partner with, we have an entire, we recognize that it takes, sorry, I'm going to try that again from, uh, we also partner with, sorry, editor, sorry. So uh, we also recognize that it takes a team, right? Like entrepreneurship is, it's, there's really still this vision of like, oh, it's one you know person. It's, it's never that, it's, there's a team, right? Our Panacea uh, Financial was founded by three of us, but each one of us individually never could have done it. Um, it took all three of us pulling everything that we had. That is true when you're running any business, and whether that is a dental practice or medical practice, surgical center, like you need a team. And that team includes, we hope, of course, Panacea Financial with the financials. Um, we have teams, entire teams of people who are uh, vetted, who are lawyers, who work in the space, much like our own Will Sullivan, uh, who work in the space of practice transitions. Um, we have consultants who help, who, whose focus isn't on consulting to, to make you widgetized and better and to turn you into the same PE shop. It's consultants who their entire mission and goal is to keep you independent. And that means strengthening your bottom line, finding low uh, low loss opportunities to, to shore up and reduce your overhead and make sure that you stay where you want to be. And so it's it's this recognition that Panacea Financial, we obviously want to be central to this relationship because it's money and money often is. But we also, by virtue of that, know a lot of brilliant people in the space who are pulling for the same end goals that we think that these doctors are as well, which is to stay independent, stay at bedside and keep treating patients for as long as they can in as much capacity as they want to and return that independence and autonomy to their practice instead of feeling uh, the, the yoke, so to speak, of, of, of having been chained up by private equity or some of these other loan structures or ownership structures that are more onerous than liberating. Ned, everything you guys are doing at Panacea is truly impactful to the healthcare industry. It's so insightful and mindful for you guys to consider the fact that these practitioners have this burden of stress and how could they potentially, you know, practice every day wholeheartedly if they're so burdened in their everyday life. And so everything you're doing is super great and we're really happy to hear about everything you're pushing out. And so we hope our listeners will tune in and uh, check out the platform and thank you so much for joining us today yeah, thank you ned amazing work that you're doing thank you very much really appreciate it thanks for having me here at slice of healthcare on uh, let's cover that really glad to be here